Thank you, my dear brother and my sisters, for your worship. I love those old hymns, and uh, <clears throat> I love the fact that we are drawn back to the core of our faith. Thank you for the prayers, too, uh, James. I covet those. Uh, you ought to know, if you don't, I have never preached a sermon here on a Sunday in my ministry that I didn't start on my knees with people laying hands on me before the first service. I covet the prayers of my people, and uh, and when you think about it, pray for your pastor because it makes the difference. And I'm grateful to begin to begin uh, my message to you this morning with that covering of, of God's prayer. Hard to believe, isn't it, that we have completed a year through this book? I mean, it seems like yesterday that we were kicking off in, in September uh, our journey through the story, which is an abridged version of the Bible. And I've heard people talk to me. They've shared more than once of, of, the, of the way that their view of Scripture has been transformed and deepened because of, of the reading of this book. I hope that's been true for you as we have journeyed through this together. We, the intent of the, of the story is to give us a 30,000-foot view of the gospel, to take a look at God's salvation history starting from the beginning to the end and see these great themes that recur and cycle their way through again and again and again. And most of all, most of all for us to recognize what we're calling the scarlet thread. And that is the appearance of Jesus from the first moment to the last. He appears in the very first chapters of Scripture. And he continues, as you will see today, through marching through all the way to the very last chapter. So this appearance of Christ, this saving work of Christ, this drumbeat throughout all of Scripture, we're calling it the scarlet thread. Last week you heard Pastor Larry actually preach the last, uh, the last message out of the story, out of the book of Revelation. And by the way, I hope you will take the time to hear it. It was a terrific message on heaven. It was uh, encouraging to me. And next week, as you know, we kick off on Bluegrass Weekend, and we're going to launch our summer sermon series called Fearless Q, Fearless Questions, based on the questions you submitted to us. And I thought I'd kick off the series with a softball dealing with the uh, issue of drumroll predestination. So for a little softball, I mean, what says Father's Day like bluegrass and a sermon on predestination? So I hope you'll be here for that. But, uh, but today... I wanted to take one more lap around the story. It's been so rich and so good, and I, and I just wanted to take one more shot at it to try to summarize it. One of the reasons that we did this was not just to, to look at the Bible in a different way. One of the reasons we did this was to begin to give you the tools to tell the story. Our mission is disciple-making. How can you make disciples of Jesus if you cannot recount the story of God? And particularly if you can't weave your own story into the story because yours is part of it. So our hope has been that we've given you kind of hooks to begin to hang pieces of the story on and, and, and you'll have a chance when the moment presents itself, when the Spirit gives you the opportunity, you'll have a chance to speak and say, this is what the Bible says. Cindy and I were in San Francisco last week for the, the retirement of a dear friend, and, and we took a day and went into the city, and, and we climbed up 422 steps, I counted them, from the harbor up to Coit Tower, and then we stuffed ourselves into a very, very, very small elevator with eight other people and made the rest of the journey up. And it got me thinking, what is the elevator speech for the story? If you had a two-minute chunk of time to give 
the people who were willing to listen or who were trapped in the elevator with you, the, the, the story of God's salvation history from Genesis to Revelation, how would you do it? There might be many ways to approach this, but today, as I kind of try to put a ribbon on this, I, I want to I suggest that we might think about it in this way. Three trees. Say, three trees. Three trees. Uh, there are three trees in the Bible that I think summarize the, the real heartbeat, the core of the story. Okay? Can you imagine what some of them might be? Well, let's see how you do. Let's see how you do. The first tree appears in Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning of the story. Uh, if you were to read chapter 1, you would read that God has already created everything. He spoke it all into existence. He pronounced it good. And the pinnacle of creation was when he created man and woman in his own image, male and female, in the image of God. And we discover that he has this intimate and special relationship with this, this man, this woman, uh, in, the, in this garden. It's a perfect place. It's idyllic. And they're given the run of the place. Adam is told, listen, all of these trees, all of the fruit, all of the vegetables that you see, it's yours for the taking. Enjoy, eat up, bon appetit. He said, there's only one exception. And of course, that exception is where we run into the first tree of the story. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2 and and listen to that account. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, what? You will will surely die. And you know what happens next? That's exactly what happens, isn't it? Satan shows up and he is in the guise of the serpent. He appears to the wife, to Eve. And he, he begins to beguile her. And he does so by basically saying, God is so stingy. Why would God hold back this really cool fruit from you? I mean, why wouldn't God let you have that? And the up, the, uh, the final enticement that causes her to want to, to eat the fruit is he said, you know what? God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because if you do, then you're going to be like him. You'll know all the stuff God knows. You'll know right from wrong, good from evil. And God doesn't want that. That's why he's withholding this fruit from you. And of course, she bites, literally. She takes the bait. And she eats this fruit and there enters sin into our human existence. If you want to see what sin at its core looks like, here it is. Because sin at its core is not naughty little things that we do that get us in trouble. Sin at its core is this. We want to be God. We don't want God to be God. We don't want God to call the shots. We don't want God to tell us what is right and wrong. We want to be God. We don't want God to be sovereign. We want to be sovereign over our own lives. Which, by the way, is going to be one of the issues we deal with next week when we're talking about this doctrine of predestination. We cannot stand the thought that God might really be in charge of everything. And that's exactly where Eve fell. And so, thus begins our human story. Thus begins our journey of alienation and separation from God. We want to be God. The job's already filled our story of rebellion is, begins at this first tree. And so we'll call this, this tree the tree of separation. Because in a moment of disobedience, 
Sin entered the world and a wedge was driven between us and between the God who loved us. And we lost paradise. What a bummer. We lost paradise. And so this is the tree of separation. Way back here, Genesis 2, okay? We call it the tree of separation. All right, second tree. We're going to go to the end of the story. Revelation, chapter 22, even past where Pastor Larry preached that magnificent sermon on heaven last week. He was in chapter 21. We go to chapter 22. And there we discover, once again, as a reminder, Revelation is a glimpse of the future, and it's full of pictures and images, and it's kind of wild and loud and colorful and crazy, but it's awesome. This glimpse that we have of heaven on earth as God restores and renews all things. And it is there that we are introduced to a, a second tree. Listen for it. Listen for it. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations, No longer will there be any curse. Say that last line with me. No longer will there be any curse. Doesn't that sound lush? I don't know if you've ever had a chance to be in a rainforest, but this is the image that begins to come forth from the, from the picture that God gave to John here. He tells us of this crystalline river filled with life-giving water that flows from the very throne of God. And it flows down, flows down in the middle of the street. A grand, luxurious canal in the middle of the city and that water flows down and feeds the roots of a tree so massive so awesome we are told that its trunk was on either side of the river like a great banyan tree and we are told that this tree the branches bore luscious fruit and that every month a new crop was produced i grew up in yakima and our whole life as agricultural people was built around the, the harvest in the fall. Uh, you waited, 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 work, 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 and then you took the harvest, and then you began the, the wait again, another year, until the, a fresh crop of apples would be produced. But in this tree of life that we get an image of, there's a fresh crop every month, a new crop as luscious as the first. And not only that, not only is the fruit good, we are told that the leaves are good for eating and are healing. You know, all of Revelation, you need to understand the images behind it and the numbers. It's a big book about numbers. And so I want to take a little deeper look. First of all, every time you see the number 12, do you know what it's alluding to? It's the 12 tribes of Israel. Every time 12 appears, it is a way of talking about the 12 tribes. And so one of the images that we find here as we look ahead to, the, to the, the tree of life in Revelation is that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, will be restored into relationship with him. And that's wonderful. But it's not going to be just the, 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 the chosen people of God. We also read that the, that the leaves brought healing to, to whom? Did you see? The nations. That's code. When you read nations, that means Gentiles. That means non-believers. That means non-Jews. When God spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to be my man, and I will be your God, and we will make of you a great people, and through the people, you will bless all nations, the whole world. 
He was looking ahead to this moment in eternity when we see that the nations of God, not only the Jewish people, but all of God's people have been grafted into the tree of life. Jews and non-Jews alike all together enjoying this relationship, this luxurious, glorious glimpse of, 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 of a future that is perfect with God. Here's what's really cool though. And I wonder how many of you would have won this in a little Bible quiz. Are you aware that this isn't the first time that we see the tree of life? Did you know that? We see it vividly in Revelation 22. Do you know where we first saw the tree of life? That's exactly right. Back here in Genesis 2 where I just read from. Turn with me. Genesis chapter 2. A little before the passage I read earlier. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were, read it, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see that? There wasn't one great tree in the middle of the garden, there were two great trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we've already called the tree of separation. That was there, but right next to that stands the tree of life, the tree that we're going to see again in the book of Revelation. What that means is this, from the very beginning, the very beginning of creation, it was God's intent that his children would eat of the tree of life, would enjoy an eternal life of perfect relationship with their heavenly father. But when they disobeyed God, when they tried to be their own God, God booted them out of the garden. Why is that? We're actually told why. God says, I can't leave them in here in this state of brokenness, this state of separation. If they eat of the tree of eternal life, of life, they will be forever in a a state of brokenness and uh, separation from me. I cannot have that. And so he kicks them out so that they won't eat of the tree of life that would seal them in this state of separation and brokenness forever. That's what it means then when we come to that part in Revelation that we just read where it says, no longer will there be any curse. What was the curse? The curse was sin. The curse was God's curse upon the disobedience of his children that kicked them out of paradise and away from the tree of life in the first place. But we circle back around on the other end and we have a picture of paradise restored. We're back in Eden. There's a tree of life again and we have access to it free to eat of its fruit. We are invited once again into an eternal relationship with God that he intended from the very beginning. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? But here's the question. How do we get from the tree of separation to the tree of life? There's one more tree. What is that tree? It's the tree of salvation. The tree of salvation. It's the tallest, most prominent spar that, that towers over the rest of the biblical landscape. The tree of salvation. Paul wrote about it in the very first letter that he wrote, Galatians. He wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Peter wrote about it too. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. 
from the beginning. It was God's intent that we would live in the shade and in the fragrance of the tree of life. But our disobedience caused us to be expelled from the paradise and our relationship with God was separated, was broken. But God never gave up. And the entire story is an account of how God set about restoring that relationship, repairing that breach, lifting that curse. The whole story is about how God works to lead us back to the tree of life. And every pathway converges at the foot of the tree that stood on Calvary. It is a savage and sweet irony that the Creator, the one who created the tree from which the beams were carved, would then allow himself to be nailed to those beams so that he might set us free from our curse and he might heal our wounds. The Creator murdered by his own creation on his own creation so that he might reunite that which was separated so that he might swing open once again the doors of paradise that were closed to us so many millennia ago. Here's one more way for us to think about these three trees, the tree of separation, the tree of life, and the tree of salvation. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, he talked about three great attributes, the three greats, faith, hope, and love, right? Faith, hope, and love. Would you go with me for a moment on this? I wonder if we couldn't see the the tree of separation as the tree of faith. If only Adam and Eve had had the faith to believe God, to believe that God was good, to believe that God was uh, intent to do only the best for them, that he gave them what was right and withheld what was harmful. If only they had had the faith to believe God, the whole story would have been different, right? It's the tree of faith. And then, and then we come to the other end, and it's the tree of hope. Don't we long for something different than what we are experiencing? I hadn't heard the news this morning until Julie prayed about it. I didn't know this horrific attack in Orlando. And there reaches a point, doesn't it, where it just wells up within you. We are sick. We are sick of terrorists. We are sick of politicians. We are sick of Zika. We are sick of divorce. We're sick of cancer. We are longing for something more, longing for a river of crystalline water that flows from a throne and feeds our souls and restores all things to newness and life. We long for that. And one day, one day we are told we will sit beneath the fragrant and lush shade of the tree of life by those crystalline waters that flow from the very throne of God. That is hope. So we have a tree of faith and we have a tree of hope, but we don't get here without the tree of love, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this is the tree that towers over the rest. If you've ever been to a circus to watch the great tent being set up, it all starts with the raising of a central spar, a huge, huge pole that is taller than all of the rest and so mighty that upon the rest of it, the entirety of the structure hangs. The cross of Jesus, the tree of salvation, the, the, 
The tree of love is the great giant that stands tall over all of human history. And everything in our past and everything in our future pivots, finds its center right here on this tree at this point. And when we gaze upon that cross with the Creator hanging from His own creation, dying, pouring out His blood for us, we are reminded once again of the scarlet thread. We are reminded that once again from the first bite of forbidden fruit to the first moment of the expulsion out of the garden, God was already at work restoring all things, making all things new, bringing together that which had been separated to return us to the shade and the comfort and the glory and the bliss of the tree of life. So there's your story. There's your story. Three trees. If you can't remember anything else, tell the story with three trees. The tree of separation, the tree of hope, and the, the, the tree of love. Separation, life, salvation. Faith, hope, and love. I want to invite you to join me in prayer as we think about this. Father, thank you for this journey through your word. And I particularly thank you for the scarlet thread that we have seen that binds these trees together from tree to tree to tree. This incredible gift of Jesus who from the start said, I will restore, I will redeem, I will bring back that which has been lost and separated. So Jesus, we bow before you in wonder and we thank you for this gift. And we pray it in your name. Amen. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the reigning king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the broken down walls of human life. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is our righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man. In life's fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband, forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he's the baptizer of the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he's the messenger of beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's way. In Habakkuk, 
He is God's evangelist crying, Revive thy works in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he's the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he's the fountain opened up in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's the son of man, feeling what you feel. In John, he is the son of God. In Acts, he's the savior of the world. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he's the father of Israel. In 2 Corinthians, he's the triumphant one, giving victory. In Galatians, he's your liberty. He sets you free. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is your joy. In Colossians, he is your completeness. In First and Second Thessalonians, he is your hope. In First Timothy, he is your faith. In Second Timothy, he is your stability. In Titus, he is truth. In Philemon, he is your benefactor. In Hebrews, he is your perfection. In James, he is the power behind your faith. In First Peter, he is your example. In 2 Peter, he's your purity. In 1 John, he is your life. In 2 John, he's your pattern. In 3 John, he's your motivation. In Jude, he's the foundation of your faith. And in Revelation, he is your coming king. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the keeper of creation the creator of all. He's the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. Unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was even dead and brought life. He is risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand him. The armies can't defeat him. The schools can't explain him. And the leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him. The people couldn't hold him. And Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler couldn't silence him. The new age can't replace him. He is life, love, longevity, and Lord. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness, and God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, pure. His ways are right. His words eternal. His will is unchanging, and his mind is on me. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my guide. He is my peace. He is my joy. He is my comfort. He is my Lord. And he rules my life. The end. (laughs) The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, 
Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.